Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's issue of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. I am Dr. Dania Koja, an emergency physician who works in Baltimore, Maryland, and lives pretty much all over the world. And I am Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we're going to be talking about the December 2020 issue of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine, which is ASAP's official CME publication. Each month, we have two lessons that cover the bread and butter of emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge. There are also a lot of other features, such as the critical procedure, critical EKG, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. And for our first lesson, we have up in flames, fire-related injuries. Thank you to doctors Alex Swire, Michelle McLean, and Jessica Lancaster for this article. Thankfully, we don't see burn patients often, but it's a pretty important cause of mortality from unintentional injury in the United States. And it's been such a long time since we've talked about this. So how should we approach these patients, Wendy? Well, a lot of the resuscitation and burn management is really initiated in the pre-hospital setting. And 60% of these patients who present for evaluation will actually ultimately require an admission to a burn center. Okay, so let's start with the airway management. Well, we worry about airway in burn patients because they're exposed to superheated gases or toxic fumes, and this can develop very rapid and progressive upper airway edema. Inhalational injuries can actually affect up to 35% of burn patients, and it's an independent predictor of mortality. So the guidelines suggest that we should intubate burn patients who have obviously upper airway obstruction, if they're unable to handle their secretions, if they're hypoxic despite supplemental oxygen, if they're altered, if they look fatigued, or if they have signs of hypoventilation. Really, we're looking for signs such as deep facial burns, blistering of the mucosa, as well as oropharyngeal edema. And it's interesting to remember that the edema may also worsen with time because of the treatment we're providing, which is fluid resuscitation. All right. So how do we figure out if a patient is having an inhalation injury? Well, remember when we talk about inhalational injury, that can happen from just the heat, the thermal injury itself, but that can also happen from chemical injury or things like incomplete combustion and those type of particulates. And so if you have information about the type of fire and and what was in that environment, that could be helpful. Clinically, if we have a patient in front of us, we can also look for signs of facial burns, singed hair, or carbonaceous material, like soot in their nose. Remember that we also have to worry about carbon monoxide and cyanide toxicity because of these chemical byproducts often in house fires and industrial fires, and these patients can present with mild symptoms or very severe with hypotension, even in cardiac arrest, in coma or a seizure. Chest x-rays are not very helpful initially in in a lot of cases because they can initially be normal, but you can consider things like getting an ABG to evaluate for carboxyhemoglobin levels, as well as look for a lactate that might be elevated in cyanide toxicity. The most important thing is you have to have a high index of suspicion because if you're looking for signs like bradycardia, respiratory depression, or cardiovascular collapse, that's too late for cyanide toxicity. All right. So how are we supposed to treat those patients with inhalational injuries? 
Well, here we're talking a lot about certainly carbon monoxide and cyanide. And so if you're worried about carbon monoxide toxicity, you want to put the patient on supplemental oxygen. If uh, their carboxyhemoglobin is uh, greater than 3% in non-smokers and greater than 10% in smokers, remember that the oxygen will help displace the attachment of carbon monoxide to your hemoglobin. You can also consider hyperbaric treatment, but this is for certainly more severely injured patients. And so you're dealing with patients who might have symptoms of ultramental status, signs of end organ injury like cardiac ischemia. And if you're going by the carboxyhemoglobin level, then the threshold is uh, greater than 25% in regular people and greater than 20% in pregnant patients. I think it's always worth a discussion with your hyperbaric referral centers because sometimes they may consider treatment even for lower levels. When you're dealing with cyanide toxicity, hydroxocobalamin is the antidote and and it can neutralize the effects of cyanide. And it's really recommended if you have a suspicion for cyanide toxicity because really there's not very many side effects. There's mild things like skin flushing or red-colored urine. Anaphylaxis is very rare. And then, as we already mentioned, kind of a key component in the management of these patients is whether or not they're going to need early intubation because of the progressive edema that can worsen with your fluid resuscitation. So in terms of respiratory kind of supported treatments, you can give albuterol, nebulized epi, mucolytics, et cetera, to help with their respiratory status. So I like that you mentioned early intubation because I don't know if I've ever told you about this patient that I had a while ago who fell asleep with a crack pipe in his mouth and then it exploded. So yeah, so he, it was an inhalation injury with a little bit of a burn to the mouth, but unfortunately that was not really picked up initially. And people thought it was just a burn, like a local burn, and then pick up on the fact that there was more of an inhalation and a thermal injury to the airway. And three hours later, guess whose voice was hoarse had a little bit of strider, and when we tried to intubate them, barely had an airway that we could get through. Wow. So that is definitely a reminder that sometimes patients don't look as bad, and if you don't get a really good history, then you can miss on that window of an easy early intubation, and it can become a hot mess of a late intubation. But at least he got intubated and did really well, so. Good job and good catch. Yay to the team. So you did talk a lot about fluid resuscitation, and you talked about appropriate fluid resuscitation. So how are we supposed to do that? Well, remember that burn victims certainly have a lot of fluid losses from, you know, their dermal injury that causes extravasation and evaporative losses. And then there's this huge inflammatory response that occurs that causes more fluid shifts. So they're intravascularly dry and, you know, third spacing. And so we want to make sure they're fluid resuscitated so that they can maintain tissue perfusion. And all of us probably learned a formula or two. Often we can remember the Parkland formula that has now been renamed as the consensus formula. But essentially you're trying to replace this fluid loss by body weight as well as the percent of a total body surface area that has this burn involvement over the first 24 hours. And the specific formula is two to four mLs of 
we often use lactated ringers more than saline because of the amount of fluid you're going to give and the risk of hyperchloremic acidosis with normal saline. And you want to multiply that by the patient's weight and then multiply by the total body surface area. In that amount, you're going to give half of it in the first eight hours and then remaining in the next 16 hours. Really though, this is a starting point because you want to adjust the amount of fluid you're giving to the patient based on you know, clinical assessments, like signs of tissue perfusion and urinary output. That way you avoid over resuscitating the patient. Got it. So what else do we need to consider in these patients? Well, in terms of for the burns themselves, you can cool them with sterile water and then cover them with dry dressing. And then remember to also prevent hypothermia, so cover the patients with warm blankets. And you also want to give a tetanus booster if it's been more than five years since their last immunization, or if the patient's never been immunized before, then you're going to give some immune globulin. Uh, the treatment of blisters is actually quite controversial still, so it's worthwhile to discuss with a burn surgeon if you have a question about it. And we've talked about escherotomy before. Usually, if you need to do this, it'll be within the first two to six hours of injury for compartment syndrome. And remember that to properly do this, you want to release the eschar to the depth of the sub-Q fat. All right. So we've managed these patients, we intubated them, gave them fluids, but we're not a burn center. How do we decide who needs to be transferred to a burn center? Well, there are a number of criteria that I'm sure we can all find online, but the general kind of considerations are any patients with full thickness burns, any injuries that are from electrical, chemical, inhalational burns, if it involves the hands, the feet, the face, genitals, and major joints. And then if you have partial thickness burns that are greater than 10% of total body surface area. If you have other complicating factors like they have a lot of medical comorbidities and that might really complicate their management, you can also give them a call. All right. Well, that was a fantastic review of how to manage burn patients who are, thankfully, are not often seen. But it's definitely a great reminder that, of course, just like all emergency medicine patients, airway comes first. We should not forget about the possibility of delayed airway edema. And that's why early intubation may sometimes be the right thing when we're worried about a thermal injury to the airway. We should remember always that patients could come in with also carbon monoxide poisoning or cyanide toxicity. And it's not just the burn itself that's on the outside of their body that we need to care about and treat them accordingly, whether it's oxygen, just good old oxygen or hyperbaric for carbon monoxide or hydroxycobalamin for cyanide. Fluid resuscitation should be according to clinical assessment, but a good spot to start is the consensus formula, which used to be called pregnant and that we should always try to cool burns as much as possible with sterile water and prevent hypothermia and finally boost their tetanus if needed. There's always a burn center somewhere near you and you should remember that patients who have full thickness burns or burns over the hand, feet, face, or major joints or genitalia should be transferred. If you're uncomfortable caring for the patient at your place because they have a complex medical condition as well, it's always worth that extra call to the burn center. Excellent. All right. So moving on from burns to other injuries, let's talk about knee dislocation, which they talked about in the critical cases in orthopedics and trauma. And this is a case of a dislocation of a prosthetic knee that occurred during 
an appointment with ortho. So apparently, in addition to all the contact sports that we're not supposed to do and the twisting, we're not supposed to go to appointments with ortho because apparently you can dislocate your knee. So, yeah. <laughs> so joking aside, obviously, this is not going to happen to a regular knee, but this happened to a knee that's had arthroplasty or prosthetic knee. And although these spontaneous knee dislocations are not common, but they can be pretty serious. And interestingly enough, I actually had a patient with the same story yesterday. That they went to an orthopedics appointment? No, they had a spontaneous dislocation. But in my story, the orthopedists fixed it. So, yay. Yay. Um, but, she, <laughs> but she was actually sitting at the edge of her couch on a phone call and doesn't remember how, but she thinks that she may have flexed her knee or something. And that's the interesting thing to remember from this article. In addition to a lot of details about knee dislocation, I am sure that all of our listeners know this, but it's always worth a reminder that we should always have a high index of suspicion for knee dislocations because these patients are at a high risk of vascular injury. And a big hint is the laxity of ligaments in two planes while you're examining the knee. And that should make you think, well, maybe that knee completely dislocated and then just spontaneously reduced. So your neurovascular exam is absolutely golden. Fantastic reminder of a lot of important things that have to do with knee dislocations, especially a post-arthroplasty knee. That sounds very scary. It is. I looked at the knee and I was like, I am not touching that. Just call ortho. It's too way too much metal in there. <laughs> right, exactly. Switching gears a little to our critical image this month, it's a case of a 16-year-old who had signs and symptoms that were concerning for a pheochromocytoma. And while the 24-hour urinary catecholamines and metanephrines are 100% sensitive, the reality is it takes time to collect it. And so sometimes you may actually find on CT that they have an adrenal mass. In this case, his adrenal mass was hypermetabolic on his spec CT. I learned that hypertensive emergencies have been reported after receiving IV ionic iodinated contrast, but not with what we commonly use now, which is the non-ionic contrast. And sometimes maybe in your other workup, you might find an incidental adrenal mass, which really will require workup and follow-up because 5 to 7% of these may turn out to be FIOS. Oh, wow. I really liked this critical image, not only because the images are super cool, the same way they usually are, but also because it really simplifies in a very realistic manner of how we should be working up patients with suspected FIOs in the emergency department from an imaging standpoint. So definitely worth a look. And now switching back to traumas, the critical procedure today is about primary tenorophy of hand extensor tendon. And this is a great reminder that you can repair extensor tendon injuries in the emergency department. A couple of great tips. If you cannot find the distal end, then extend the digit. And if you cannot find the proximal end, then just extend the wound proximally. A couple of extra points is to bury the knots to reduce the stiffness while healing and to splint the joints to prevent contractures. Definitely take a look because it has a really detailed description of how you actually repair the extensor tendons that had me acting it out myself. And now switching from hands to hearts, digoxin toxicity. The critical ECG article this month talks about the difference between ECG findings when a person is just on digoxin versus when they have digoxin toxicity. Right. We have always learned about and seen 
patients who have that classic sagging ST depression with upward concavity or the hockey stick appearance or the Salvador Dali mustache. Uh, but remember that this just suggests the presence of digoxin, and it's really bradycardia and AV block and PVCs that suggest digoxin toxicity. That's a great and definitely important differentiation. And now for our second lesson of this month, going for the throat, strangulation injuries. Thank you to Drs. Ralph Riviello and Heather Rosie for writing this article. I don't think we've talked about this before, although it is relatively common, especially in intimate partner violence and sexual assault, and of course, attempted suicides. Many complications that you can think of after strangulation injuries are immediate, but some can be delayed. And remember that non-fatal strangulations in the setting of intimate partner violence is a significant predictor, unfortunately, of future homicide. So we have many parts to play when we encounter a patient like this. There are also other mechanisms, such as the choking game, as well as autoerotic asphyxiation. So it starts by differentiating between strangulation, choking, and suffocation. So strangulation is the external compression of the neck, resulting in compromise of the neck vessels in the trachea. This is different from choking, which is internal tracheal occlusion with like food or whatever, and suffocation, which is anything that impedes respiration. And there are four types of strangulation. There's manual strangulation, so like a hand, elbow, knee, or feet, and that's the most common one. There's ligature strangulation, which is the most common accidental one, especially in kids. There's postural, where the weight is against the neck or the neck is against an object. And then there's hanging, which is a combo of postural strangulation and ligature strangulation. A great tip that's in the article is that if a patient presents with a ligature in place, please do not cut through the knots. Just cut through any other part. And that's definitely going to help your friends and examiners later on. I see. So which is worse? I mean, all of them are pretty bad. So this really depends on the type, the location, and the duration of the pressure. And keep in mind that there may be a cumulative effect for repetitive bouts of strangulation. So how do people die then from strangulation? effects. So the overarching mechanism is hypoxia. Hypoxia can be due to vascular occlusion, whether it's venous or arterial. We'll talk a bit about that in a second. It could be because of airway obstruction. So it's either like occlusion of the actual airway, which takes a lot of weight and effort, or most commonly an injury to the thyroid or hyoid with hemorrhage and edema, or stimulation of the baroreceptors in the carotid sinus and sheath, causing bradycardia and arrest. As for the vascular occlusion, then venous compression occurs relatively easily because your jugglers are kind of superficial and they're easy to you know, occlude. And that can cause stagnant hypoxia and petechiae. Whereas arterial compression causes decreased blood flow to the brain, and it can also cause thrombosis and delayed strokes. And then traction of the neck can cause dissection of your carotids. What are the signs and symptoms that we may see then? So an incredibly important pearl is that the lack of signs does not rule out strangulation. I kind of knew that, but I didn't really know the numbers until I read this. Up to 20% of fatal strangulation. So people who die from being strangulated, one out of five will have no visible injuries. And that number is even higher in non-fatal strangulation with 25 to 50% of people not having any visible injuries despite being strangulated. So excluding it just because you don't see any signs is definitely not the way to go. 
the most common place where you'd find any signs of strangulation is the skin. There's possibly bruising, including finger-shaped ones, if that was the mechanism. There could be scratch marks as well that are self-inflicted as defense. And there's petechiae. Patients can have scleral or subconjunctival hemorrhages. They can have hemotympanum or autoresia out of their ears. There may be swelling to the tongue or oropharynx or buccal petechiae, and that's relatively common. And up to 50% will have dysphonia or a hoarse voice. If a person has dysphagia or adenophagia, if they have subcutaneous emphysema, then you need to think of laryngeal injury. And there's definitely a bunch of neurological stuff too. There is a great figure in the article that summarizes it all. That certainly is a lot of things to watch out for. Which are the most concerning? So the neurosuffer are definitely the most concerning outside of the immediate airway threats that we talked about. If a patient has loss of consciousness, visual changes, loss of bowel or bladder control, we should definitely be worried about cerebral hypoxia and that should warrant further workup. So you mentioned that we may not see signs when we evaluate these patients. Are all of these symptoms immediate? Well, some may actually be delayed. So things like swelling of the pharynx, larynx, and supraglottic region may take up to 36 hours to develop. And the article actually does mention patients who present eating an emergent trach a couple of days after the strangulation event itself, which sounds super scary to me. Another thing to think of is pulmonary edema. So like post-obstructive pulmonary edema can develop up to 48 hours later. And finally, stroke secondary to carotid artery dissection may take weeks to develop. And that's why it's incredibly important for us to give patients really good instructions on when to return to the emergency department and also to be very hypervigilant about strangulation injuries. Any other pitfalls that we have to watch out for? So a really good one in the article is talking about how confusion and altered mental status with strangulation can be a sign of anoxic brain injury. But unfortunately, in these situations, they may be assumed to be due to intoxication or substance use and can cause delayed care for the patient or even worse, that we would not take their complaints or concerns seriously, especially if they don't have any outward signs of the strangulation. Gotcha. Other than signs and symptoms of strangulation, what else should we assess for? As we said before, it's definitely important to have a high index of suspicion for strangulation injuries. Just like the statistics you mentioned earlier, it happens a lot in intimate partner violence and sexual assault. So that's why any patient who comes in with intimate partner violence, sexual assault, or any focal neurological deficits, we should screen them for strangulation. Also, we should think of who else was present for that event, because with intimate partner violence, Children may be present in up to 50% of cases. And if that is what happened, then we need to make sure that they are safe and if we need to involve child protective services. Okay, so what type of workup do we need or imaging, I'm assuming? Well, everyone needs a pulse ox. That's easy, that's simple. We need to make sure they're not hypoxic. Other than that, the workup should be tailored to each patient, depending on the severity of the injuries and so on. Some would advocate to just do like a soft tissue neck x-ray to look for like subcute air, tracheal deviation, hyoid fracture. C-spine injuries don't really happen unless a patient has had like a hanging with a free fall. So it doesn't really happen with just good old strangulations. If a patient is coming in with like shortness of breath and you're worried about pulmonary edema or aspiration, then a chest x-ray may be indicated. But a CTA is probably what I would lean towards for a lot of my imaging. Because if a patient has any dyspnea, any voice changes, any neurological symptoms, that would be incredibly helpful for me to figure out if they have a carotid dissection or laryngeal fractures. MRIs and MRAs are fantastic looking for soft tissue injuries, 
but they are less sensitive for vascular injury. And then finally, if the patient is having stroke-like symptoms or they have any of the high-risk factors that we've talked about, as in things that make us worry that they've had a neuro injury, such as loss of consciousness, urinary incontinence, or focal deficits, then MRI of the brain may be warranted, especially if they're starting to have stroke-like symptoms and we want to make sure that they didn't already stroke out. Got it. I think that documentation in these cases must be very important. Any pearls for us? Oh, absolutely. First of all, documenting well will make it so much easier for the patient to have the extent of their injuries clear in court and would also make it less likely for you to have to go to court and testify if your notes are clear. It's always great to document in the patient's own words, and you should also ask the patient and document the method of strangulation, the position of the assailant relative to the patient, and a description of examination findings. If your EMR allows you to put in photographs, which a lot of modern electronic medical records allow you to do, then just put in these photos. It would make it a lot easier to justify your medical workup and what you have done for this person. Got it. Now, what about disposition for the patient? Do they have to be admitted? So obviously, patients who have serious injuries resulting from strangulation should not go home. That's pretty obvious. However, there are a bunch of patients whom we should observe in the emergency department for 12 to 24 hours to make sure that they don't have any delayed injuries. So the patient lost consciousness, if they have any visible trauma like the TKI, if they're intoxicated and we're trying to make sure that this altered mental status is not just the intoxication, but if there's any underlying injury like brain injury, and if they cannot be reliably monitored at home for worsening or delayed symptoms, these patients should stay in the emergency department for up to 24 hours so that we can continue to care for them. That's true. Well, thank you, Dania. As you mentioned, this is really an excellent article on how to evaluate and take care of patients with strangulation injuries. I learned that there are differences, certainly between strangulation, choking, and suffocation. And as you mentioned, if there is ligature in place, don't cut through the knots as that's important evidence. The most important take-home point, I think, from this lesson is that the lack of signs does not rule out strangulation. As you shared with us, that 20% of fatal and 20 to 25% of non-fatal strangulations have no visible injuries. We're really looking for airway and neurological symptoms from this, as well as potentially vascular injuries from the direct pressure, and being aware that delayed symptoms can occur in cases where this occurs in the setting of intimate partner violence. We also have to be aware of children who may be present in those situations in whether or not they may have been harmed. In terms of our workup, everybody gets a pulse ox, as you mentioned, and probably a CTA for evaluation of airway, vascular injuries, etc. And documentation is definitely key to help the patient as well as help yourself. Definitely a great review that's worth reviewing. So now to your favorite section, the LLSA review. Let's talk about patients who require intramuscular sedatives for agitation. I think this was a great study because this debate comes up all the time about what is the best intramuscular agent to use when you're dealing with an agitated patient. And this study looked at four medications, haloperidol at 5 milligrams and 10 milligram dosing, zeprasidone at 20 milligrams, olanzapine 10 milligrams, and midazolam 5 milligrams. As we mentioned, these are all given intramuscularly, and they evaluated how effective it was at 15 minutes. And they found that midazolam was the most effective, Woohoo! with olanzapine being second. 
But patients who receive midazolam actually more often needed rescue medications because of the short half-life and duration of action of the medication. And I think the most interesting point from this is that the dose of haloperidol did not show a difference. So whether you gave 5 milligrams or 10 milligrams, the patient had the same effect, same not very effect. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty interesting. So I think this is important in terms of how we might have to change all of our perspectives on the use of the traditional 5 and 2 or other stuff in the ED. But again, the caveat is, is that this study only looked at monotherapy, so it did not evaluate combination therapies that we often use in the ED. But that's another soapbox. <laughs> All right, you and I are going to talk about this once we hang up from this podcast. Okay, and moving on to our drug box this month. I don't know how to pronounce it. Maybe it's Remegapent. Sounds good. No, hold on. The M is before the G. Is that a soft G or a hard G? Regemapent? It has to end in a pant, is all I know. <laughs> all right. I, you know what? It's one of the pant medicines. <laughs> right. It's actually another migraine medication. We've covered a few of these in our drug box on our podcast. And it's interesting because obviously we're always looking for better treatments for migraine. And this is a non-opioid oral dissolvable tablet, which is great, potentially in the ED. And... It's a single dose given for a migraine attack, and at least the studies thus far have shown that 86% of patients did not require any rescue medications, including over-the-counter medicines like NSAIDs and Tylenol, within 24 hours. And a sustained effect was seen up to 48 hours in many patients. So could be really helpful. All right. Hopefully we will have more pants in the ER soon. Hopefully lots of pants, but also this pants. <laughs> Finally, last but not least, uh, the tox box for this month is methanethiol. Methanethiol. <laughs> okay, I caught it from you, Andy. <laughs> it's methanethiol or methanolcaptin, which is the putrid smelling odor of natural gas. And that is highly toxic, and it's used in the production of plastics, pesticides, jet fuel, and farm feeds. It can be inhaled or dermally absorbed. Just because it can, please don't do it. It causes respiratory distress, apnea, seizures, bad things, coma, hypotension, and lactic acidosis. Just like all of these tox boxes, decontaminate, decontaminate, decontaminate. And then, of course, it's your airway, breathing, and circulation. If your patient is seizing, it's good old benzos. And just maybe... You have some leftover hydroxycobalamin from that cyanide toxicity from lesson one. You may have some possible benefit with this. That's right. Well, thank you, Wendy, for taking the time to go through this issue with me. I have enjoyed listening to you as I do every month. Our dear listeners, we hope you enjoyed listening to us as well. We hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication, as well as our podcast, always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. We would love to hear from you. Our Twitter handles are at Tanya Koja. And mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>